Hey everyone, Nisha here, and this is Season 1, Episode 14 of Migrations. Today, we are talking Indian matchmaking. I know it's been a bit longer between this episode and the last one, but life demands ask me to take a little breather. But now we're back, and we have two more episodes after this one till Season 1 is over. There will definitely be a Season 2, and I cannot wait to share with you all how I'm shifting things around a bit. So, Indian matchmaking. If you're South Asian, or even if you're not, you probably binged it like me and a lot of my other South Asian friends. There have already been plenty of articles and podcasts about this Netflix series, but I also wanted to get my word in, specifically with how maybe it can be called Indian cast-making. On the heels of Oprah's latest book club pick, Cast, by Isabel Wilkerson, which talks about how racial inequality in the United States was paved by the Hindu caste system in India and the Third Reich. Indian matchmaking doesn't directly address caste ever, but because of this, it completely upholds it. What is the caste system? Basically, it groups Hindus into castes by level, and even these castes have their own subcastes. Initially, it was based on profession, but now it's more of a social measure. The lowest caste are Dalits, also known as the untouchable caste, which I'll talk a little bit more about later. Indian matchmaking was released in mid-July, and over the course of eight episodes, it follows men and women in India and the United States who are willing to be set up by matchmaker Seema Taparia from Mumbai. I was one of many South Asian Americans across the country who binged it. And trust me, I don't really binge shows. I also found out that a lot of non-South Asian watched it too. I assume that based on some of its basic concepts, it was made for a wider audience. But after listening to an interview from Smriti Mundra, the show's executive producer, I found out that it was actually made for a South Asian diasporic audience. This kind of surprised me because I felt like so much more nuance could have been added. For me, Indian matchmaking was one of those shows that I could have on in the background, giggle at the Indian tropes, and roll my eyes when an auntie said, fair, in relation to a desired skin tone, or adjust and compromise when referring to how women should act, especially as prospective brides. So, I wanted to have an episode about this because there are so many takes on the show. Some people were upset that it didn't have any Muslims or lower caste Hindu or queer representation. Some people were upset that, spoiler alert, none of the couples ended up together. So, I decided to talk to some of my own Indian friends about this. I asked my friend Naz about her first impressions of the show. It largely was what I expected in that it had all of the predictable tropes that come up in the world that is marriage for Indians, specifically like Indians of a certain caste and religious identity. So in that way, it was kind of what I expected. It had all of the ready kind of cliche references to wealth, status, you know, height and beauty and all of these kind of like normative structures. Nevertheless, it was kind of amusing to watch. You know, I think a lot of us found that when we would meet someone who's South Asian or talk to someone the last couple of weeks, they were all watching it and all had something to say. So in that way, like, even though it was largely predictable, I would say there were some elements of it that were kind of amusing. My friend Nazia Kazi, who I call Naz, is an anthropology professor, Islamophobia scholar, and author of Islamophobia, Race, and Global Politics, which investigates and reveals the connections between U.S. imperialism and Islamophobia. I also asked my friend Mausam Makar what she expected. Mausam is an actor who you may have seen on The Vampire Diaries, Mindy Kaling's Champions, and The Exorcist on Fox. 
I didn't know what to expect, but I found it entertaining right off the bat. Just because I feel like a lot of people like to say that this arranged marriage thing is an old relic and it doesn't really happen anymore, but that isn't the case in my life. I mean, I went to India in December for my cousin who got an arranged marriage. I have plenty of family members who've gotten arranged marriage. I've, I've also family members who don't, but arranged marriages are still very much a part of my life for all my family in India. So it didn't seem so foreign. Um, and I know that some of the criticism has been, oh, this doesn't happen anymore. But I do feel like this is a reality for a good portion of people in India and you know Indians in America. So I didn't find that disturbing at all. I mean, and in general, I just kind of absorbed all of it and all the, you know, the warts and everything of like the type of criteria that sometimes parents had that kids didn't have and vice versa, all felt like, yeah, there are definitely people who think this way and feel this way. And it didn't feel especially wrong. I don't, you know, you, you can never say that about the entire country because India is so diverse as far as, you know, in everything in culture and religion and language and everything. But it felt true enough for this, you know, version of reality TV that we were watching. It felt true to, you know, Ms. Taparia, who is the matchmaker and all of her clients. So I found it like a window into a particular part of India. But while India is so vast, a lot of us felt similarly about how familiar this felt. Nas explains. Some of that stuff sort of just felt like real life where you're like, oh yeah, I know an auntie like that. You know, like the woman who is like really overbearing about her son and basically gives him an ultimatum to get married and he's very kind of obedient and go like, I feel like we all know that auntie and we all know that son, you know? And so in that way, like there was kind of like moments of like, <laughs> as you're watching it. I felt this as well. I could think of family members and family friends who couldn't imagine the thought of having unmarried children or who allowed their health to suffer because, gasp, their child wasn't married before the age of 30. But at the same time, the danger in having these quote-unquote characters was that it validates their behavior. There are some of us, I imagine a lot of the listeners of your show, who kind of watch this with a critical lens and were like, oh, geez, you know, they're doing that. But then there are going to be some who watch this and be like, see, I'm not that weird. Like, I'm just like that lady in that show. Like, what's the big deal? This is normal, you know? And so I think there's going to be lots of takes on this. And it's funny she said this because a couple of days later, I went to visit my mom and she said something similar about how the controlling auntie on the show, who is blaming her son Singledom for her stress, is a reality for a lot of people in India. And the other funny thing is, neither Nas or my mom are wrong. It is as problematic as it is real. I don't think that makes it valid, nor should it be normalized, but plenty of people would and do normalize it. And this begs the question, how much does the media further reinforce this problematic behavior instead of criticize or investigate it, especially for a non-South Asian audience? I asked Mausum about this. You know, it's one thing, you know, when we talk about it among our South Asian friends and everybody kind of is like, oh, yeah, I know this. Yeah, this sounds familiar. Oh, this is crazy. But how do I feel if like a white person is judging my entire culture based on this show? And that's something I've thought about. And there's a part of me that's always like the more stories, the better. And this is different from a fictional show. You know, this is reality show. So that's already skewed in whatever way 
they want to portray, you know, they want to create a story essentially for us to watch. I think in my thing as, as somebody who's in entertainment, who wants to see more South Asian stories, it's sort of like, well, if a white person watches a show and finds it highly entertaining, and they may have whatever judgments that come out of it, if it makes them curious about maybe a South Asian cast film that comes out next year, then that's great. You know, if this was their glimpse into Indian culture and they found it entertaining, no matter where their judgments are, if it means that they're more prone to watch something that, you know, has an all South Asian cast like Mindy Kaling's show or, you know, essentially the South Asian version of, you know, Crazy Rich Asians, then that's great. But then I asked her how it could be harmful. There's definitely a lot of harm that comes from something that is so classist and colorist and just very narrow views of what is considered ideal as far as beauty and everything like that. I mean, it was really sad to see, you know, that woman, I forget the the woman who has her own design house with her sister. Oh yeah, Ankita. Yeah, yeah Ankita. Yeah. And, you know, and how she felt like people were telling her that she couldn't even get married or she had no chance of finding a suitable mate because of her weight. You know, it's really depressing to see things like that. And to see that somehow, you know, if this in any way kind of affirms those views of like, oh yeah, you know, you're only eligible and attractive if you're fair and slim, trim, and tall. So that's how it can hurt. And if this turns off, you know, it's essentially, it could be considered airing dirty laundry, right? If like, you know, when there are so few stories and the only stories they see are so judgmental and classist and everything, does it then give somebody who's like, you know, how can you accuse us of racism when you, within your own group, is doing all these things, you know? So if this in turn closes the doors of communication and conversation of just like, well, you know, you guys have your own shit to deal with. You know, why are you telling us to be more open-minded when you yourself are kind of peddling these archaic views? then that's where it can be very harmful. A few weeks ago, I watched a Facebook recording called Cast and Colorism, Challenging the Standards for Love and Biased Societies. This conversation included the executive producer of Indian Matchmaking's Smriti Mundra, International Dalit Solidarity Network's executive director, Meena Verma, and Dalit activists then Mori Sundarajan from Equality Labs, and Christina Dunaraj, author of Swipe Me Left, I'm Dalit, from the book Love is Not a Word. I'll link this recording in the show notes. Smriti admitted that this show was in no way inclusive of everyone in India, and it was not necessarily meant to highlight Dalits, but that she also hoped it could open doors to narratives that defied what the show itself normalized. And while, yes, it is that hard to get your foot in the door, especially in the mainstream, then Maury posed an important point. She said that the duty of storytellers, quote, isn't to tell the world as it is now, but to tell the world as it could be. Families themselves are the most castest institutions. As storytellers, you can say, I want to speak to the pain that's here, but also move us to different possibilities, unquote. Then Maury also recently wrote a piece in the Washington Post about a lawsuit at Cisco where upper caste Indians were discriminating against a Dalit employee. This is in America, in the Bay Area. Casteism is not exclusive to India. It lives with you and it shapes your life. And caste was used to divide Indians after the fall of the Mughal Empire in India and the rise of the British Raj. So colonialism basically made it worse. I also talked to my college friend Eva 
a married working mom and writer who was born in Bombay and raised in Chicago, about the show. She also recently wrote an essay about Indian matchmaking, linking it to her parents' atypical love marriage, which essentially is the equivalent of two people meeting and falling in love and getting married. You can find it in the show notes. Eva also recognized the classism and colorism in the show. That was just a shameful part of the whole um, Indian matchmaking story. And it was really revelatory about how we treat each other as Indians and how judgmental we are and how divided we are, whether it's colorism or caste or what it means to be truly true blood Indian versus whatever um, people were suggesting she might be. It was just, yeah, it was not good. The she Eva is referring to was one of the cast members, Nadia. Nadia identified as coming from the Guyanese community. For those of you that don't know, there is a population of Indian Caribbean people that a lot of quote-unquote mainland Indians such as myself don't really know too much about. Nadia talks about how a lot of people have judged her heritage, questioning how Indian she really is, and this has also made it really difficult for her to find an Indian guy. I will say I know woefully very little about the Indian Caribbean community. I know they've been in the news recently. I think in Trinidad and Tobago, there's um, some political strife related to how divisive things have become there between more of like the African Caribbean population versus the ones of Indian descent. I had heard of Guyana in particular. I remember when I was in high school, I had friends from New York who would mention like, oh, because I, you know, I was one of like three Indian people in my high school. And they would say things that ones who were from New York, like, oh, yeah, I I know something about like Indian culture because this girl from Guyana that I grew up with, blah, blah, blah. And they had been exposed to Indian culture through the lens of the Indian Guyanese community. Nadia was a fan favorite of the show. She was very sweet. And so many people were rooting for her, especially after her first prospect ghosted her. But Nas made a really great observation about Nadia. At one point, she's like, you know, Indian people don't really think I'm really Indian, right? And that's absolutely true. I mean, even the name of the show, like Indian matchmaking, anytime you hear the word Indian or like Hindu, your skin just like kind of bristles because you're like, I know this is going to be some kind of supremacist narrative. And in her case, like in the case of Nadia, she's like, you know, Indian people don't think I'm really South Asian or whatever. And yet she's dying to marry an Indian guy. So there was something really sad about that where I'm like, you're, you really want a place in a community that repeatedly makes clear it doesn't have a place for you. That really blew my mind for two reasons. One reason is that I was also someone that was rooting for Nadia, almost in a fairy tale kind of way where rejected girl meets her Indian prince. And I never realized how assimilatory that actually was. And it also blew my mind because I consider myself someone who is attuned to the ways people are oppressed and rejected, and I hadn't even realized this, which made me see how much I've internalized assimilation throughout my life. I honestly can't say I considered myself an upper caste person because I'm not Brahmin, which is the highest Hindu caste, but I realized that I basically am, and the fact that I didn't know this proves that I am. If I was of a lower caste, trust me, I would know it because I would be rejected and discriminated against because of it. I read a great article about this and other missing narratives in The Atlantic called Indian Matchmaking Exposes the Easy Acceptance of Caste. Author Yashika Dutt writes of the show, This silent shadow hangs over every luxurious living room she leads viewers into. In India, we have to see caste. We have to see the height. We have to see the age. The Paria, the show's central narrator and driving force, says in the first four minutes of the series, 
She lumps an entire social system which assigns people to a fixed place in a hierarchy from birth, together with anodyne physical preferences. Though it's rarely mentioned by name on the show, caste appears on almost every criteria list that the Faria's marriage hopefuls lay out. By coding caste in harmless phrases such as similar backgrounds, shared communities, and respectable families, the show does exactly what many upper-caste Indian families tend to do when discussing this fraught subject. It makes caste invisible. There is a lot of really great analysis in this article, and I'll link to it in the show notes for you. So these euphemisms for a system that has excused massacres and genocide of Dalits dismisses a very harmful and violent reality in India. If you are of lower caste, you are considered undesirable and of lesser value. And today, with the Hindu Nationalist Party in India, the divides are highlighted even more. Eva talks to me a little bit about Hindu nationalism. I think the concept of Hindu nationalism for me, personally, is something that I find really alarming and I have for a number of years. I think it's alarming for the world's largest secular democracy. The Republic of India is a secular democracy to be, um, you know, I was born in Bombay. It's taken a long time to even have the word Mumbai roll off my tongue in a way that feels comfortable. Like that's very uncomfortable to me, actually. And maybe to other people, it's uncomfortable to say Bombay because they don't like this anglicized British Raj word that was created and they wanted to go back to the roots of Mumbai. But to me, the renaming of the city to Mumbai reflects something that is a little deeper and scarier and does, I think, link back to Hindu nationalism. And it makes me really uncomfortable. I don't know what the broader viewing audience is privy to any of that and privy to how much that as a movement has become so much more mainstream in India, has grown, has grown in power to the point of our prime minister being reflective of that movement. Yeah, it's pretty alarming stuff. And the alarmingness of it all stretches far and wide from the weaponization of yoga to the genocide of Muslims. And in the context of Indian matchmaking, it is truly about Indian caste-making, even though they won't admit it. For many South Asians, marriage is a sign of status and structure, and not just in India. In the show, Seema travels between India and the United States, helping men and women in both countries. One of the most talked-about characters was Aparna, a lawyer who lives in Texas. Some people characterized her as picky and stubborn. I asked Naz what she thought about her. I mean, I think like she embodied kind of the thing which good girls are not supposed to be. So, you know, she's like, I mean, I, I, I found her to be really annoying, but not because she was really particular about what kind of partner she wanted and not because she was really cold and standoffish the people she met, those things, whatever, I didn't care so much. I mean, what I found annoying about her was like her kind of bland sort of upwardly mobile aspirations. I mean, I can't imagine, we never really get to see what anyone on the show is like, what their politics are, but I'm assuming, I, I don't know, I just felt like Aparna and so many of the other characters were just characters. So many of the other people on the show were so committed to sort of class narrative you know, I mean, I think she's like, I was in second grade and I was knew I was going to be a lawyer. And I'm like, oh, my God, you, that sounds awful. I know exactly what Naz means. I was one of few Indian kids in my generation whose parents didn't force them to become doctors or lawyers or engineers. But I also felt that I needed a stable white collar job and a stable white collar husband, even though I deeply saw how that was flawed. Aparna definitely got a lot of flack. 
After I finished the show, I heard her on a podcast, and she made a really great point. She got so much criticism for rejecting guys when another cast member, Pradyuman, rejected over a hundred girls, and it was just casually mentioned. They focused on each guy Aparna rejected and didn't even show the hundred that Pradyuman dismissed. So these gendered standards were essentially reinforced in the editing. It's hard to say if this was on purpose, but... This is a reality show. So they have to realize that this is going to be specifically edited to show a certain thing. Yes, ultimately, this was a reality show. And I think that's something we have to always keep in mind. And that's why, for me, this show was more entertainment. But not everyone necessarily sees it that way, especially those who may not identify as South Asian. They might actually think this is the way things roll everywhere in India and America. And that's pretty scary to me. While the media can be a great vehicle for showcasing cultures, it also can leave a lot out, like the fact that there were no Muslim or Dalit representation. Nas gives her take on this. On the one hand, it wasn't that surprising that we didn't see any Muslims because that's very normal. Like when people are talking about India, they want to pretend that, I don't know, 20% of the population doesn't exist. But then like, you know, sometimes you watch Bollywood and you can see these tropes of like, there's often a good Muslim character and they're kind of you know, like a close pal or a nanny or someone of the upper caste Hindu family. And it's a very liberal like trope of just like including Muslims. And this is why Bollywood sometimes comes under attack from the right wing BJP as being seen as like too quote unquote pro-Muslim, you know? So like in this show, there's zero Muslim representation. But then when you do get Muslim representation, it can fall along some very flat and stupid lines. And for me, I mean, like even when you asked me to like sort of come on this podcast, I was like, I'm not really interested in cultural analysis so much. And the reason I say that is because well, okay, let's say they change the name of the show to South Asian Matchmaking and they had like a Pakistani couple and like a Jain couple or an interreligious couple. I don't know. I would still think the show is kind of has a lot of problems that we should think about, you know? And so for me, it's like to binge watch this series and I don't normally binge watch anything. And the reason a lot of us are is because we are trapped at home. We are trapped at home because of a crisis of American capitalism, right? We're not trapped at home because of a medical pandemic. We're trapped at home because of the gross mismanagement of this pandemic by people with tremendous amounts of power, right? And so India right now and the United States right now are sort of leading the world as the epicenters of this pandemic. And it's a problem of corruption. It's a problem of capitalism. It's a problem of mismanagement. And so to sort of sit around and think we can impart a lot of political weight to whether or not there are Muslims represented in this show, that doesn't really matter. I don't think if there were Muslims represented in this show, that it would do much to change Indian perceptions of what's happening in Kashmir, specifically Hindu perceptions of what's happening in Kashmir, right? So I often get into it with people who tend to be sort of liberal but not leftist about the importance of representation. And I don't always think that like, adding a Muslim character or having a central Muslim character or a central black character. I think those are kind of distractions from what is a material issue. Race is a material issue, right? The problem of Islamophobia in India, it doesn't stem from like how we are represented in film and media. It stems from issues of wealth inequality, of access to land, of access to power, of access to the political process. So that's why I'm like, yeah, of course there were no Muslims, but also I don't really care so much, if that makes sense. 
This is exactly why I asked Nas to be on the show, because while media and entertainment have their role in shaping how we think and feel represented, larger global policy is a different story. For example, the issues around Hindu nationalism and caste can be depicted in a show or documentary, but shifting actual political lines is a different struggle. Nas talks about some South Asians that have been able to break ground in the media. Because, you know, you could end up with a Mindy Kaling, a dark-skinned brown woman in media, but what does that do for us politically? I mean, and I often like say, and this surprises people, like how terrific Harold and Kumar largely was politically, because you see these like two Asian-American kids who are like dealing with racism and dealing with like the stupid flatness of like model minority tropes and kind of going through that. So, I mean, representation might mean something, but representation doesn't necessarily mean that much. Like, Will Hassan Minaj, for instance, will he ever have the political space to do an episode about Palestine and BDS? You know, like, I mean, so what does it mean to have someone in the spotlight if they're sort of politically muzzled? Ironically, or maybe expectedly, Hassan Minaj's Patriot Act was canceled from Netflix after we had this conversation. I'll admit, I have a weakness for romantic wistfulness, and I thought Indian matchmaking would be a fun way to see it on screen, a sort of Indian rom-com reality show with familiar tropes and memories of the aunties and uncles of my youth, and of the present, too. And while so much of it was familiar, more in a cringeworthy way, it was nice to be able to talk to my South Asian friends about it. Though, these days, we need more than nice. We need change. We need South Asians to reckon with their own anti-blackness, which is perpetuated by colorism and casteism. Instead of embedding ourselves in the stories of reality shows, we need to imagine how things look beyond it. Sure, fight for representation, but that's just a step in a massive political landscape. And sadly, while more people of color are represented on the screen these days, it's still really challenging to not be typecast or exotified. And within my cultural and family system, judgment about caste and color are so ingrained and believed to be true that it feels impossible to convince anyone otherwise. But we have to try. And we also have to heal because as the daughter of Indian immigrants, I have been delivered these anti-Muslim, pro-caste, pro-skin lightning techniques since I was a child. No, not as an adult, as a child. Now that I know the truth about them, which is almost completely against the truth so many of my elders hold, I feel like I'm speaking a totally different language. So, before engaging in a fruitless argument, I do my best to heal my own wounds and to accept my wholeness as a human being. I also try to understand that these messages are generationally passed down, and generational ties are incredibly strong. So, it might feel like we're swimming upstream, but the conversations have to start. So please, please take care of yourself, but do not forget the messages that you've been given. Like always, I'd like to thank my creative talent that helped me on this episode. So thank you to Tiffany Wong for your help with the Migrations cover art. Thanks to Shin Kawasaki for the Migration song, Find Another Way. Music is also provided by CC Mixter by Airtone with the song Resonance. And last but not least, thank you so much to Quincy Sirismith for editing this episode. Of course, I want to give a shout out to my $20 a month and above Patreon patrons. So thank you so much to my brother Shalene, Gina Manila, and Dahlia Guerin for your generous support. Thank you to all of my Patreon patrons. 
Remember, you can support this podcast by going to www.patreon.com migrations. This is Nisha Modi, and I'll see you next time.